Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. My family thinks I'm crazy. Podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth, UFOs, aliens invading, fluoride in the water, they spray our skies daily. When I talk about these things, they think I'm crazy. There's no escaping anymore, the evil that we're facing. Illuminati might control the sacrificing babies. The end of days, but anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. What, they don't want to listen to you? No, they don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy. You know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Stargates under Orion, anchoring the stellar signature of an ancient connection from mound builder to Mormon to Freemason. What if Detroit's eight mile was turned on its side, revealing an infinity of expressed cosmic divinity from mound builder to Mormon to Mason alike under starry night and at the foot of three of the top five largest bodies of fresh water in the entire world. Conscious living water, the source of life, endless mystery. As we enter into this Heart Plaza Stargate portal within the anomalous and strange Great Lakes region, we are joined by our guide, field investigator and author, Chad Stemke. I'm Mystic Mark, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Every park I've looked at, has the male and the feminine unity. You'll find either an obelisk-like structure and a ring-like structure or arch feature. You know, the ring or the arch is obviously the feminine symbol, but the obelisk is the male. But pretty much every park will have both of those. Heart Plaza has a giant obelisk right at the entrance to the park. It's called the pylon. And then it has the giant stargate. You know, that's your circular room. And that creates a gateway park. And at every single park I've looked at, man, will have both of those symbols incorporated somewhere. And sometimes it's the same symbol. You know, for instance, the gateway arch in St. Louis, the artist Errol Saarinen, he designed it and he said this, he did this intentionally so it would be both an arch and an obelisk. So when you look at it from the front, you see the arch that we're familiar with. But when you look at it from the side, it looks like an obelisk. So you have the arch and the obelisk create the gateway. And that's, you know, that seems to be what's taking place in many cases. The unity, the male, the female, 
uh, you know, given the opportunity for this gateway symbolism for whatever reason. My name's Chad Key and I live in Michigan. Now I live in Northern Michigan. I moved up here from Detroit a few years back. And my research really now consists of looking at modern landscapes that incorporate all kinds of symbolism, many times symbolism that I believe may have emerged from the past. So I look at ancient sacred landscapes and look at the parks and buildings and architecture built on top of them and see what kind of symbolism emerges. And that's kind of what I'd like to do is go from city to city and just kind of decode some of this symbolism. I mentioned the gatekeeper right here in Legends, the gatekeeper guarded these waterways right here. He was also a manitop, just like you pointed out. And, you know, what I find interesting is as the Europeans come and they settle these spots, how some of the ancient symbolism will reemerge. Like it was meant to be there. And sometimes the Europeans don't even realize they're building some of these buildings or pieces of art when they're doing it. But the symbolism that comes through those pieces of art symbolically, I feel like may be destined for these spots. So I find that is very interesting that we have these same islands, you know, both sacred landscapes. And that's kind of how it works. I mm. think a lot of these places are, are show, showing up with the same imagery on these ancient landscapes. And that's why it's cool that we have all these different guys in different areas able to kind of tap into it and start decoding them. And here we are decoding this symbolism. Chad, I got to say, brother, I was impressed. You know, I heard you on Freeman Fly Show. I heard you on the Higher Side Chats. A lot of people have recently, it seems, taking a you know bigger interest in where they are. For the longest time, people thought of doing things like going on these spiritual pilgrimages, right? Because these sacred places are so few and far between that unless you go to the Great Pyramids or unless you go to you know Mount Kilimanjaro, you may never experience these great spiritual heights. And I just think that is all wrong 100% false you can find gnosis in your own backyard even in your own you know literally backyard you don't even have to go into your own town you know if you have green grass in your backyard that you can connect to the spiritual energy of the land now that might not be true in the middle of a city that might not be so true there given what you said earlier about how they seem to recognize these spiritually significant places and take that into consideration in the planning of these major cities, Detroit being an example of that, New Haven, Connecticut being another example of that. When did you start to recognize this, Chad? Was there a sort of like moment you were just walking around Detroit, you stumble into Hart Plaza and you start scratching your head like, what the heck is this? Like, did you, did you hear another researcher talking about something similar? What what was the first spark that kind of 
led you on this journey? There was a little of both of those. I was visiting this plaza in Detroit almost every day, going down there, and I'd walk my dogs around this plaza and skateboard around this plaza. And at the same time, I was just getting into this kind of stuff, and I was interested in a researcher. His name was William Henry, and he's an investigative mythologist. Mm. And one of his things is he was talking about Nashville, Tennessee, and the symbolism incorporated in what's called Bicentennial Mall. It's the same situation. It's an ancient burial ground, and they built this park over top of it that contained, as he put it, all this Stargate symbolism. So I was, went to a couple of his lectures, and you know, I was following his research. And one day, like you said, I was sitting in Hart Plaza, smoking a joint on one of these monuments, and decided to take the time to read the signs. And I walked around the plaza and I read the signs. And within a couple hours, I was absolutely mind blown at the symbolism. So I went home and started doing some research. And I'm still researching this area to this day. So that, that's kind of where I got started. And William Henry kind of took me under his wing for a while. And I was, helped me out and was kind of his disciple. And we went around and decoded a bunch of these towns. And yeah, I mean, this is certainly something that becomes addicting, you know, and I don't mean to put that negative connotation on it, but it is so fun to go out with new eyes and realize like, whoa, there's all this hidden stuff, you know, right above my head. And most people, unfortunately, now have the phones and they're just staring at their phones. But even still, you know, before phones were mega popular, you know, we we were mostly folks who would just kind of look forward and keep our eyes to, you know, our business and, you know, maybe not us too particularly, but generally speaking, the average person doesn't take time to appreciate these things or maybe just doesn't even know that there are these things worth appreciating. So for those who may not be in Detroit, for those who may be in some small town somewhere that they think, oh, well, Chad, Mark, you know, you guys are cool. You guys are in these big cities. But me and old Podunk, you know, Egypt, Illinois, nobody, there's no symbolism here. Maybe that was probably the worst example for a place I could have picked, Egypt, Illinois, right? Cairo, Illinois, is that what I'm thinking of? <laughs> Cairo. Yeah, Cairo, Illinois. But, but yeah, you know, I think a lot of people may be feeling like, oh, well, I want to try this out. Are there any tips that you would give folks, like, for what to look for? Uh, obviously, signs can be very helpful. I like looking for those state signs. I don't know what they call them out where you're you're at, but we have like these blue Connecticut state history marker signs, you know, national register landmark, things like that. What, do you have any, you know, quick yeah. tips for people who want to hit the ground running maybe that right after they listen to this episode? Yeah, for sure. See, I'll, I'll start with kind of just Detroit in general, but like you said, it doesn't have to be a giant city. You can kind of do the same thing in smaller cities, and sometimes the stuff does show up in smaller areas. The way I basically start is by looking for the ancient sacred landscapes, I guess, where they used to be around town. And then I'll investigate that area, see what's there now. And I'll find, and there's lots of times there, you'll find there's a park there, or, you know, art architecture and then i'll look into that art and architecture i'll look into the artist and the architects and I'll look into the history of the artists and the architects and i just 
you just kind of start working your way backwards. And honestly, the best thing to do is you have to have your boots on the ground. You can do a certain amount of research before you get there, but you have to have your boots on the ground because it's going to be synchronicities that basically lead your way. You're going to go down there. You're going to start reading the signs in the area you discovered, and you're just going to start following the signs, following synchronicities. You know, you might have to look up a couple things online while you're doing it. And you'll be amazed some of the stuff you start to discover. And like you said, one of, I think one of the most important parts of this, it's the journey, man. It's addicting, as you put it, to be out there and be part of this story of discovery. It's it's incredible. Mm. And And what people quickly realize is that the story is almost waiting for someone to come along and write it, right? And this sort of synchronicity seems to be the fuel that pulls you in or, or gets you in faster, right? Maybe that's what becomes addicting. Did this start happening for you, Chad? I mean, obviously you, you had the opportunity to, to meet William Henry. That might have been a synchronistic per chance meeting. I don't know. But were there any synchronicities that sort of you remember being like, oh, wow. This is, I'm, I'm finding something here. Oh man, the, there are so many, the almost the entire journey was is synchronistic. What I just talked about the other day though, that I got right off the top of my head is I was looking at the symbolism in Heart Plaza, which is one of these parks I look at. And the center feet, this park is called the Horus and Sun Fountain. Now this fountain is dedicated to Horus Dodge the Dodge automobile pioneer. But even so, I've been looking at it because there's all kinds of Egyptian symbolism in this park. So as I'm looking at the Horus and Dodge fountain, I decided I should go, for some reason, I decided I should go find where Horus was buried and go pay my respects. So I found out he was buried in a cemetery called Woodlawn Cemetery off 8 Mile Road, and went there, and what I found is some giant Egyptian mausoleum where Horus and his brother were buried. The Egyptian mausoleum is flanked by sphinx and obelisks everywhere, you know. You creep up there, you can look in the door of the mausoleum, and there's stained glass relief in the back of the Egyptian pyramids. So I, I was feeling pretty like I was on some sort of path or something, you know. I just left another part of Detroit looking at a Horus and Sun Fountain and found myself at a Egyptian mausoleum dedicated to Horus. And as I was leaving, I, I was feeling pretty thankful, I guess. And I actually it was said out loud, which is weird for me to do, you know, Horus, man, give me a sign. I'm on the right path. <laughs> <laughs> and my card literally kind of sputtered. My car started to sputter. I was like, oh shit, man, I'm running out of gas. So I was, I'm in a pretty rough part of town actually. And, Luckily, I look across the road and there's a gas station. So I pull, sputter across the road up to the closest pump, pull up there and pumping gas. And I ha just happened to glance down at the ground. And where my foot is, coming out from the side of my foot, engraved into the concrete, there's an AD. And this is dry, you know, not something that just happened. It was dry. There's just an AD. And I lifted up my foot, and under my foot was a CH. So it literally, I lifted my foot and engraved in the concrete, literally said my name, Chad. <laughs> so, I mean, and how many years ago that was put there? 
you know, and how I managed to be across the road and ask Horace for a sign and end up running out of gas at the gas station with my name under my foot, I have no clue. But that's the kind of thing that you'll find happening time and again. I mean, that kind of stuff would just continually happen. And I just think it's just part of the process of discovery, you know? Oh, man. Yeah. And I mean, that in hindsight, after seeing everything you've uncovered, your name written in concrete, I mean, and then you go and find this pattern written into the 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 fabric, the texture of the city. I mean, wow. Yeah, that certainly certainly is. I thought you're when you said A.D., I thought you're going to like reveal your foot to some date, right? Like uh, 16 something A.D. And then that'll, you know, but Chad, you know, it's your name. It's not like my name. If I see my name somewhere, Mark, you know, I could just say, oh, well, they probably meant the, the word Mark, the noun Mark. Chad is is a name. It's 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 unmistakably a name. There, I don't think there's many things that go also by the name Chad besides people, right? No, and it didn't really ever come. No, it didn't come to mind until you just kind of mentioned it. And like I said, I'm an in, It's a pretty rough neighborhood, and most of the people in this neighborhood. There's not too many Chads in this neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, we'll just say it's not a Chad neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> well said. It's not, a, not a lot of Chads. I mean, maybe maybe the guy who was building the gas station. I don't know, but it, it took me by surprise. Right. You know, to say the least. Right. Right. And and when you're dealing with these consciousness portals, you you almost like. And again, this is hindsight stuff because when we're when we're getting on this journey, we might not understand fully that we're dealing with the consciousness portal. But now, you know, looking at what you sent me with the PDF, you say, can particular areas in Detroit function as consciousness portals, catalysts connecting us to the past, present, and future? And I mean, that synchronicity you just told us is exactly that. It's a consciousness portal. That name, your name, could have only been written there in the past. Obviously, it wasn't fresh. Obviously, you're not a, a dubious person who would hoax yourself. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> there there's certainly uh, consciousness at play here. I mean, and when we look at the word Horus, I mean, those of us who know about Egyptian symbolism, that might have rung a few bells, but Horus is, is a gentleman who I remember... From an interview that you did, I was listening. Horace was a, a prominent figure in the the community, and he's there's like a statue of him and his son in Hart Plaza. Now, I want to give you an opportunity to explain that further, but I also want to point out that Detroit is very much uh, a town known for its auto industry, Motor Town, USA. Right? I mean, that's Detroit. So. You mentioned this gatekeeper, this water gatekeeper, whose name is Pontiac, right? Pontiac wasn't his name. Pontiac who, was who's an Pontiac? American who would visit. Pontiac was a local Native American chief here in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And he was known as the leader of all the lot of the Native American uprisings in the area he was the leader of. And he would go to the Peach Island to converse with the gatekeeper. He would go there and spend a week and meditate and whatnot and try to get information from the so-called 
spirit of the gatekeeper, which, you know, to me, he was there visiting a consciousness portal, and he that he would make a decisions if he was to go to work after visiting the gatekeeper. Okay, and excuse my mistake. I'm only, really, I guess why I wanted to bring that into it. No, no, no. I just say that for the the critical listeners, I not yourself, <laughs> but the 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 Pontiac, Chad, these names, Horace. There's certainly an energy behind names. We know that, you know, we've had people on this show that have broken down the value of words, shown that words can be used in a sort of spell casting type of way, and it's been my suspicion that they use the names of significant Native Americans in a sort of alchemical way, maybe to even invert the power away from, let's say, the inheritors of this land, right? The people who belong here, so to speak. Not that I'm a social justice warrior who believes in reparations, but when we're looking at these ancient sites, it seems like the current powers that be, the colonial powers, take great care to keep up this name game, right? We see a lot of significant places carry the names of significant people or even carry the names of what the, you know, tri the Native Americans named these places. And Pontiac being a pretty successful, well-known car, Right. I wonder what the, the magic is there. Like they could have chose any other word outside of Pontiac to name that car brand. Right. But they chose Pontiac. And it seems like this man is very significant. He, like you said, had a relationship with the gatekeeper of this consciousness portal. Absolutely. The names like you pointed out are, I believe, super important and people knew they were important. And particularly here in Detroit, like you said, they took these names and here they put them on different automobile companies. Like you said, you had Pontiac, you know, that was a big automobile company. A Horace Dodge, that he is the inventor of the Dodge Automobile Company. Right. And then the other guy who came, came to town was Cadillac. And of course, we're all familiar with Cadillac. So they tried to take these names and, you know, utilize them and put them on objects and symbolism that, you know, eventually is spread around the world, you know? Right, right. And, and the Great Lakes region being this extremely wet, but also extremely anomalous place, right? And not like, you know, other very wet places. It's also very cold there. So we have like this sort of strange mix of elemental energies going on. I've had someone on the show named Peter Shampoo, who I highly recommend if you haven't, you buy his book Gaia Matrix, because in Gaia Matrix, he has a Great Lakes pentagram that he drew out. <laughs> and it's like uh, a ley line network, right? And Peter, unlike many... Uh, ley line or dragon line experts he prefers to see the circular expression of this ley line energy right whereas most ley lines you'd assume are straight right he does have straight lines 
but he sees these sort of earth rings, these concentric circles that, particularly in the Great Lakes region, seem to have like an axis point or a center point. Have you looked into this yeah. before? And, and, and can you speak to maybe the larger significance of the Great Lakes area? Yeah. Yeah, man, absolutely big fan of Peter. He sent me his book about 10 years ago, showing me the Michigan biome and showing me how it's the pentagram laid over the state and how the different points of the pentagram point to different sacred landscapes around the world. And the pentagram is one symbolism that I point out in my presentations that is destined for not only Michigan, but the streets of Detroit. Now, like you point out, the entire Michigan biome takes on the shape of the pentagram. Now, if you're looking at that Michigan biome and you scale it down, right at the base of that pentagram is Detroit. And Detroit streets were laid out in a pentagram. Now, if you scale down to the base of that pentagram and Detroit streets, there's a new giant building, main building in town. It was called the Compuware Headquarters, and it's a giant pentagon building right at the base of that pentagram street layout right in the middle of that pentagonal building is a pentagonal glass pyramid with a pentagram in the middle of it <laughs> and if you go right outside the front of that building laid out onto the concrete is another pentagram star saying this is detroit's point of origin so this is where the entire street layout of detroit you know where they measured it from but so you can go literally from one spot on the streets of Detroit with a pentagram, scale it up to a building, to a glass pyramid, all the way up to Peter Shampoo's pentagram. So I point out that I think this symbol is destined for the streets of Detroit in some fashion. And then mm. on that pentagonal building, you have cars with Chrysler hood ornaments with the pentagram on it, driving around that pentagon. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Undoubtedly everywhere. And symbol, you know. Well, yeah, and it's it's everywhere. You even pointed out, you know, in the notes I sent you, in my own area, there's examples of this. We'll save that for, for later on. But I just, yeah, I I think this really speaks to the fact that everybody is sort of seeing the same truth from their own angle because the fact that peter's work and your work complement each other so well i think it just yeah it speaks to the caliber of of what we're doing here and you know with the the name of this show a lot of us come here from you know doubtful circumstances insecure places right my family thinks i'm crazy and i know a lot of the listeners can resonate with that Maybe before we go a little further on, getting into all this research, does your family think you're you're crazy for, for getting into all this stuff, Chad? What's that like? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, respectfully so, but definitely. You know, I say my father's a science teacher, my stepfather was a science teacher, and my sister is a science teacher. So <laughs> when I came out 15 years ago, told him I became a field investigator for Michigan MUFON. I was now a UFO investigator, man. You should have seen their jaws drop. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, I mean, 
I mean, but they're, they're super respectful of it. But, you know, still, you can only have a conversation so far when I try to explain to them that there's a consciousness portal in Detroit. They're, you know, they're not 100% on board, so to speak. I hear you. Well, you're right at home. And I think sometimes those folks in our lives who offer that sort of resistance often propel us to go even further, right? So in some ways, they... They may be inspiring you with their skepticism, right, Chad? Absolutely. Like I said, it's a it's a respectful skepticism. So, you know, I, I can deal with that. Very cool. Very cool. Well, that is good to hear. I think that it's it's relatable. You know, I think we're all sort of finding our own family here, this extended family of consciousness. And like I said, you know, you and Peter, your work, very much compliments each other you talk about these detroit like is it lake michigan where the triangle the the lake it's the great lakes triangle but then there's a smaller triangle that's like sort of like the the hot spot within the hot spot is that in lake huron or lake michigan that is in the southern part of lake michigan okay and what's interesting about this is it is at a point in what and i'm gonna put this image in the episode description with a link so you guys can see it but it's astounding you know to your point earlier detroit is right at the base of this pentagram if you drew a straight line from the top point of this pentagram down to the base it would be going right through detroit and I'm sure if I zoomed in further, which I can't because this is an image in a book, it would probably correspond right to that building. But to even further add to the complexity and complementary nature of this whole thing, the Lake Michigan Triangle is almost exactly where the, if we're looking at this from, I guess we'll say west instead of left, the western half of the pentagram on the lower side that's exactly where this Michigan Triangle is. So clearly there's some kind of energy force going on that, you know, you can even see it complemented in like the way the lakes are shaped. And and again, this is all very visual, so we'll put a photo in. And Chad, you have some amazing, amazing photos that I hope I can include some of them. But yeah, you know, it just speaks to this place being a sacred place for thousands of years and there are many stories that show us that there is a lot of activity in this region going back very far right can you tell us about these copper mines that have billions of missing copper billions of tons i should say yeah yeah absolutely but first let me thank you mark because i'm looking at the same michigan biome picture and i never put together that that bottom part of the pentagram is the same as the triangle that's that's pretty amazing thank you for that that's super cool well and it's right above chicago where we have all these flying creatures you know the the mothman and the what's the other one that i i spoke to somebody recently lon strickler and there's the Mothman, but then there's another creature that flies around Chicago that just is is uh, terrifying. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Thunderbirds or 
Yeah, well, there's this one's a little more humanoid. It might just be like a bat or something, a Batman, but you can't say Batman because you know everybody thinks about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is it is a strange place, and you know Chicago, Detroit, even a Niagara Falls. The the base of this pentagram is not exactly. Yeah, it, there are those are big cities. They're well known, but they're also well known for violence, right? I mean, Chicago is is oh, probably sure. taken the reputation from Detroit, maybe a little bit. Detroit's probably known more for its vacancy than its violence these days. And then Niagara Falls, the other side of Niagara Falls is is Buffalo, New York, folks, and that is not exactly a a great place either. We just had that awful tragedy, maybe even a false flag hoax. Who knows? I'm not saying that people didn't die, but who knows what happened there in Buffalo? Very strange. But this is at the base of this pentagram. Those three cities that, you know, we can agree, right? Don't have the best reputation compared to maybe New York City or L.A. or another example of a United States city. Oh, absolutely. Say so Chicago and Detroit over the years, they kind of trade back and forth the bragging rights of the murder capital. <laughs> yeah. So you know, the, the cities are definitely rough. There's no question about it, you know, but it, it's energy. I think the same amount, uh, there's that positive energy coming in, but just as much as that negative energy is going into. And we're looking at this huge, huge pentagram here too. So you got to imagine maybe that positive energy is being, you know, pulled away up towards the top. And then it like, you know, I'm trying to visualize this as a moving thing, right? There's energy moving through this pentagram, right? So maybe there's like, because this is something that Peter brings up, right? And I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but you, you said you've been aware of his work for 10 years. So I think this is close to home for you. So, so the, the energy, right? It's flowing around this shape in maybe a yin yang, right? And there's gonna be a decidedly low polarity spot and a decidedly high polarity spot. You're gonna have a rich sided town and you're gonna have a poor sided town, right? So I wonder if on a larger scale, we have like all of this water, all of this pure like life up in that Northern part of the pentagram in Canada. And then we have like, yeah, a lot of sort of the opposite of that, you know, death. And and that is, that is being on earth folks. There is a, there's life and there's death. We can't avoid it, but it certainly seems like there's an occult ritual in place to sort of be on top of this process in every city. It seems like the folks who are successful the elite and maybe i'm generalizing a little too much here but it seems like the elite are aware of these things and they hire guys like noguchi to come and plan these great works of architecture so that they can be on the winning side of this energy equation because they know that the energy equation is inevitable right so can we get into and it's his name is not i'm not going to pronounce it correctly but the japanese gentleman who created heart plaza can we talk a little bit about him yes absolutely his japanese american his name is asama naguchi and in 1974 he came to detroit and right on the banks of the detroit river he created what's known as heart plaza and at one time, this is one of those ancient Native American burial grounds I was talking about. So it was a sacred landscape. And what he did is he created a plaza that 
aligns and correlates to the Giza pyramids, the Giza plateau, as well as the constellation of Orion. And he managed this by aligning several key monuments, the same as the Giza plateau, the amphitheater, the Horus and Sun fountain that we talked about, and a pyramid, as well as a giant obelisk correlate exactly to the Giza pyramids and align perfectly to the constellation of Orion on the winter solstice. So nobody would ever heard of this park being aligned like that. So my research, what I wanted to find out is if he did this intentionally, did he align this park like this intentionally and never tell anyone about it? Because I've read every interview he's ever done and he's never said, came out and said, I aligned this plaza to the constellation of Orion and the Giza pyramids. But he has said, you know, the symbolism won't be recognized until the time is right. So that's as close as he's come to admitting to the symbolism. But I did find that he had been in Egypt for the year before he came here to Detroit. And he spent what he called a year on a soldier, visiting the Egyptian pyramids and temples. And he said that his interest was how the Egyptian had this special relationship with their temples. And then he comes back here and he builds Hart Plaza. So one possibility is that he knew what he was doing and he made this alignment intentionally and hoped that one day we would discover it when the time was right. But you got to remember this Orion correlation theory, this was unknown back in 1974. Robert Duvall didn't come out with this correlation theory until 1994. So if this was the case and Noguchi intentionally did this, he'd be the first one that we know of, you know, here in America and building these parks to do this intentionally. So that's pretty significant if that is the case. But I always point out that it could have been subconsciously. And the only reason I can say this is really because of some of the other projects he did previously. And he did one called the face to be seen from Mars back in 1947, super important year, 1947. But in that year, he envisioned the earthen structure, a giant earthwork, two miles long by a mile wide. That was going to be a face that you could only see if you as far away as the moon or Mars. Now, his point in doing this was it was 1947. He was concerned we were going to blow ourselves up in a nuclear holocaust. And the thoughts were that an outside civilization or race would one day recognize that there was a civilization here on Earth at one point. So of interest is that 30 years later, NASA sends back so-called images of what appears to be a face on Mars. And the face on Mars when put next to Noguchi's face to be seen from Mars, are absolutely identical images. And uh, researcher John Brandenburg has pointed out uh, they supposedly did some studies on the isotopes from Mars and that it looks like there may have been a nuclear holocaust at some point. So we have two similar situations, a face on Earth to be seen from Mars, from Noguchi, just in case we blow ourselves up with a nuclear holocaust. 30 years later, we get these possible images of face on Mars that may have been blown up in a nuclear holocaust. 
So I always point out, did Naguji somehow tap into this consciousness portal and come back with this symbolism at some point? And, you know, it's a, it's a long shot, but I think it's possible. I mean, wow. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your point about Orion and that connection not even being really known at that time, I just through kind of exploring, like he suggested on Google Maps, there's a place north of Pontiac, Michigan called Lake Orion, Michigan. And I just thought it was so strange because Lake Orion, it was named in 1830. Like it used to be named Canada Gua, it says here. And then they changed the name in 1835 to Orion. And then a, a later uh, changed the name of the lake to Lake Orion. What What is going on there? Is there some kind of significance or is this this sort of like energetic resonance that seems to just pull this kind of stuff out from people's consciousness. What, what What's going on with Lake Orion? That's, that's the way she brought it up. My sister lives in Lake Orion. They actually, they pronounce it Lake Orion. It's spelled Lake Orion, but they pronounce it Lake Orion for whatever reason. I've always wondered why they don't pronounce it correctly, but it's Lake Orion. And as far as I know, there's no significance to, I looked at it a little bit, why they changed their name. You know, they just one day up and changed the name. I don't know if it was to make a better tourist tourist attraction as far as the name goes or what, but I think it's more like you said that this, sometimes this, these names and the symbolism, sometimes it's intentional, but sometimes it's just supposed to be there. Some guy might have just been sitting at his desk in some office in the late 1800s, and Orion popped in his head and he changed the name. Mm. You know, it's well, sometimes I think it might be as simple as that. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a big stretch here, but because it was named that in 1835, because the river running from it looks like it's called there are a lot of rivers, but the one that seems to go from Lake Orion to Lake St. Clair, which is pretty much like the Detroit River for folks who aren't aware. It's like connected to Lake Erie through the Detroit River. There's a river connecting Lake St. Clair and Lake Orion called the Clinton River. And at that time, <laughs> at that time in American history, you may know that the, the neighboring governor of the state of New York was Governor DeWitt Clinton, who was one of the most prominent Freemasons uh, in American history. He helped build the Erie Canal. He was sort of a dictator from his place in the the, the government there in, in New York. But yeah, it's not directly connected. Obviously, Canada is in between Michigan and, and New York. But, you know, what are your thoughts? Do you think there's some kind of Masonic knowledge going on here underground? I don't know, but you tapped into something, Mark, because these little places you're bringing up have such huge significance to me. It's hilarious. Uh, Clinton River, I, I grew up on, you know, playing on the Clinton River quite a bit. Frisbee golf, and we'd chase our Frisbees into the Clinton River, and we'd, you know, sit on the banks of the river and party as kids. <laughs> we used to have field parties along the Clinton River. And, and you know, I one of those 
only things I know about it for sure is that same thing. It used to be ancient mounds kind of dotting, dotting this riverway all the way up to Lake St. Clair. One of the main roads that follows the Clinton River is actually called Mound Road. And it took on its name because of all the mounds that used to follow that area. Wow. And yeah, man, Clinton River, I spent a lot of time there. Well, I got to say, it is, <laughs> it, I'm not a psychic, and this is our, basically our first time really having a, an in-depth conversation. So folks listening, don't, there's no uh, podcast tricks going on here, but I will say my buddy Joe, who, my buddy Joe, who lives out in Michigan, shout out to Joe, he is listening most likely. He lives in uh, Rochester, so he asked me, I said, hey, I'm talking to a guy who knows a, quite a thing or two about Michigan, and he's like, oh, well, I live in Rochester. <laughs> Uh-oh. Mark, Mark, I graduated from Rochester. Tap out. <laughs> graduated from Rochester. Oh, man. Class 93, Rochester Falcons, baby. Oh, yeah? Well. I graduated from Rochester, Mark. Well, I hate to do this to you, but that was the year before I was born. So maybe that <laughs> I've been, I've been, know, I've been alive as long as you've been out of, out of school. Maybe there's a, a significant there too but wow mound this is the mound river there's mounds all along this there, this river there used to be now there's as far as i know i don't think there are any left that i'm aware of now but when there used to be tons of them right and and this is something that i've heard you talk about previously the intentions might not have always been as good as the gentleman you were talking about but it seems like there was a time in american history where mounds were sort of being torn apart right they were being flattened they were finding things inside of them and can we get into this because this is a super interesting part of michigan history where they find all of these and maybe i'm kind of jumping ahead here i don't know if there's a little bit of story you want to give before you get into that part but but yeah it's fun to just kind of name places and see what we can get here chad i can, we could probably do this the whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. So, so, so yeah, the, and what, I think what you're talking about in regards to the mounds or what's what they refer to here as the Michigan relics. And most of these mounds I'm talking about, I always refer to them as ancient Native American mounds. And the Native Americans absolutely were, were living within these mounds and utilizing these mounds and most likely built a lot of these mounds. But there were some of these mounds that the Native Americans claimed to have come upon and that they were built by what they described as an ancient and evil civilization. This is a quote. They described them as an ancient evil civilization who had come to dig for copper and had built these mounds. So what happened here in Michigan, part of the history, is in the mid-1800s, as the farmers are going across the state of Michigan, there are ancient mounds everywhere. And as they're clearing these mounds, they're pretty much just tearing them down. They're discovering these ancient relics, ancient copper relics, clay relics, and even slate relics. And these, when I say relics, I'm talking about like intricate tablets with writing on them, different battle axes, different mortuary boxes, different kinds of vessels. And the issue with these relics were 
they did not have any type of Native American theology incorporated on them. They had, in some cases, almost a biblical-looking theology incorporated on them, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't along the same storylines as people were finding in their Bible at the time. So the long story short is they declared all these relics to be forgeries or a hoax. And when I say all these relics, I'm talking somewhere between ten to 30,000 of them discovered across the entire state of Michigan, including the Upper Peninsula. And what the archaeologists did is they blamed this whole, whole scenario on three guys, Father James Savage from Detroit, and another guy, ex-Secretary of State named Daniel Soper, and another guy named Scafford. And what they said is, well, these guys had been finding a lot of these relics starting in the 1920s. But these had been discovered way before that. But in the 20s, these guys started discovering some. And while the archaeologists said these are obvious forgeries, these guys must be hoaxing these relics in a shattered barn somewhere and burying them in the mounds only to come back and rediscover them. And they must have done this, what, some 10 to 30,000 times. And well, this to me, this story just doesn't make sense. Well, for one, I know I found in an ancient Michigan encyclopedia from 1848 an entry saying Michigan relics first discovered. And these guys wouldn't have even been born yet at this point, you know. But beyond that, they were taking five to 10 witnesses with them. And, you know, after they got accused of doing this, they said, okay, well, we'll take witnesses with us, you know, to, when we unbury these. So they started taking highly acclaimed witnesses with them. And they would travel halfway across the state. This is time of horse and buggy, you know, so they're not driving, they're traveling in horses. And they would find an ancient mound, undisturbed, you know, trees growing on it, whatnot. You could tell it was old, and they would dig into it, find these relics, everybody, witnesses. And the witnesses would sign affidavits, you know, and the archaeologists would still say, no, not possible. These are obvious forgeries. And now these guys must be magicians. They must be doing some sleight of hand trick. And, you know, they're pulling these relics out of their trench coat or something and just fooling everybody. So that's kind of where the story is left off. According to archaeologists to this day, they're absolute forgeries. A large collection of them, like 3,000 of them, are in the Michigan Historical Museum in a back room collecting dust. Took me like two years to get the archaeologists to let me in and get pictures of them. But they're just in there collecting dust, man, in boxes. And, well, according to them, they, I mean, they told me straight to my face, this is the only collection out there. And that's not true. Ancient American Magazine editor Wayne May has a giant collection. He even has a museum in New York showing them off. I've been to houses in Detroit where people have had collections that they've passed down through their family. I personally discovered what I call the Ted Bell collection. This gentleman has like 50 to 100 of just ancient, amazing relics. And, you know, are they real? I can't say 100% for sure, but I think a lot of them are. There could be forgeries in the mix. But, you know, the story that the archaeologists have given us just definitely does not add up. 
Not if you, anyone wants to see pictures of, the, of these. They're called the Michigan Relics. And you, you'll see pictures of them. And, you know, they're, they're super intricate. It's a really interesting story that's pretty much been lost to history because the archaeologists just out and out said they're fakes because the theology on them does not make sense. Right. Right. And, and when I first heard you talking about this, my first thought was, well, maybe they're just worried about these Mormons, right? Because the Mormons, you know, they claim a, a bunch of funky stuff. And I'm not here to be a skeptic and say they're wrong or right. I think ancient American history is way, way, way more fascinating than the archaeologists tell us. And maybe the, the Mormons have, have remembered some of that and mythicized some of that. But it seems like the Mormons wanted to claim some kind of biblical, and many groups did this, but wanted to have some biblical claim to the land, maybe some heritage, this idea that the Indians were actually the lost tribe of Israel who, you know, escaped when, you know, maybe the Council of Nicaea or something or other, and or, or any variety of, of crises and events that have happened throughout the, the history of the old world, right? The, there were many opportunities for seafaring cultures to come over to the Americas and possibly colonize. So outside of this sort of limiting mainstream narrative, there are many possible explanations for these relics. It's just, unfortunately, they're in the hands of who? The, the University of, of Michigan, right? And and their band of archaeologists, or or is it a different group? They're actually at the Michigan Historical Museum. Okay. Uh, but they ended up there, th they ended up there thanks to a professor at the University of Michigan, though. Mm. And this ties together, like you said, the Mormons were very interested in these, and the Mormons actually held the majority of this collection up until the late 80s, early 90s. And at that point, a professor, Dr. Richard Stamps, I believe was his name from Michigan, got a hold of a couple of these relics and did some so-called testing on them. And he wrote this article called Tool Marks. And supposedly he found a couple modern day tool marks or saw marks on a couple of these relics. And he took this information down to the Mormons and said, you know, all your relics, they're fakes. I found tool marks on these couple relics. You know, you should, you know, send them home to Michigan. And he literally convinced them, you know, and I seen the couple relics this guy tested. Like I said, there's 10 to 30,000 of them. And if you've seen the four or five this guy tested, you would say, you know, if there's some fakes in the bunch, those are the ones. And those were the ones he tested. And they could be fakes, but I don't believe the entire collection was. That being said, the Mormons sent the entire collection that they had back to the University of Michigan, who sent them to the Michigan Historical Museum, who put on a small display for a couple months, this, describing how this was all forgery done by Sober and Savage, and then pushed them into a back room into boxes to collect dust up until this current day. Wow. Yeah, and I mean... We can go on and on about how many times this is the case where amazing, interesting relics, ancient artifacts get put in the basements of these various institutions. But I asked about the University of Michigan because my suspicion was that the University of Michigan has a lot in common with groups like Harvard and Yale 
and I go and find out that right here, right now, while we're talking, Michigan is sometimes referred to, and they mean the University of Michigan, is referred to as the Harvard of the West. It is separated by 600 miles and is located exactly west of Harvard at 42.3 degrees north. So, you know, although they kind of talk about this in this article, like, oh, it's just a coincidence. We both know that there's no coincidences when it comes to that kind of precision, right? They, they didn't just build the University of Michigan on the same exact line of degree north, right? I mean, come on. So, wow. No, man, it's great talking to you, Mark. You come up with the awesome <laughs> connections. Okay, University of Michigan. So just briefly, back in Detroit, we talked about the pentagram street layout. Well, that was created in 1805 by a gentleman named Augustus Woodward. And Augustus Woodward was Thomas Jefferson's disciple. So he came to Detroit after the Great Fire and built the pentagram street layout. The same time he's building the pentagram street layout, he's having ideas or visions for what would become the collegiate system. He developed him as the founder of the University of Michigan, which was the first college in America. So he was he it was his idea for this whole college system, so to speak. And he originated the University of Michigan, right? You know, now you're talking about that being a special spot. It was him that put that University of Michigan there, the same guy that put the pentagram in the street in Detroit, who was the disciple of Thomas Jefferson. Wow. And don't give me any credit, Chad, because this is all thanks to you. I, I, we definitely need to put a part two. Maybe we'll reconvene later in the week and, and continue this because, yeah, man, I mean, geez, there are so many connections that are coming up here. When it comes to this gentleman and you said that Harvard, let's be very let's be very clear because the, the University of Michigan is the first college in America, because I, you know, people out here my way know that Harvard, Yale, they were founded in the 1700s. So, but those are universities, not colleges, right? Is there a distinction there? And because I want to get really into the details here. Like, I'll be, let me be honest then and say I would have, then I'd have to go back and look to get that exactly right. That just came off the top of my head. So if I am wrong, it could, it could be a difference. I'm not sure. Well, no, you're certainly on to something. You're certainly on to something, Chad. I just I just don't want to uh, mistake what you're saying. So, okay, well, yeah. But the other thing that comes up that's interesting is the university was founded with the name Catholipistemiad, which is just, it just doesn't seem <laughs> like, I, I guess I'm not a Latin speaker, but it's a mishmash of Latin and ancient Greek, and it translates roughly to the school of universal knowledge. Yeah. So. Yeah, that, now, I don't know how this connects to any of that, but he was, Augustus Woodward, the guy we're talking about, he was considered an esoteric researcher in his day. Like, everyone around town thought this guy was over the top, so to speak, with his ideas. And one of them, say one of them, if anybody wanted to look into him deeper, he actually wrote a book that nobody could comprehend at the time called The Substance of the Sun. And he wrote this book about how the sun was a giant electron. And just this whole 
his whole ideas in the science was way ahead of his time. So people literally basically thought he was crazy. I mean, but as crazy as he was, they ended up utilizing his crazy ideas, you know, for whatever reason. That's amazing. Yeah, no, this is, and this is the case more often than not with these places that are very prominent now. They have history that goes back that'll make you scratch your head. You know, the things that they balk at and say are cuckoo and crazy now from their high towers are really, you know, at the foundation of all of their institutions. And I think that's just to cover their tracks, you know, I think it's to cover their tracks. And I guess where I was kind of leading at before with this connection between the University of Michigan and then Harvard and then Yale, which is sort of like the, the younger brother, so to speak, of Yale. It was founded thanks to Harvard and seems like the University of Michigan had Yale and Harvard people at the beginning of it, too. A guy named uh, Andrew Dickinson White, who planted elms along the walkways in the University of Michigan to sort of resemble New Haven, Connecticut, which is known as the Elm City, right? Yale is kind of famous for that look. Uh, and and to bring it back to Mr. Osama Noguchi, he designed the Beinecke Memorial Library down there, or at least the, the area around the Beinecke Memorial Library. So we have these like myriad of connections between, yeah. you know, this sort of East Coast establishment that has its own flavor of weird and what you're looking into over here in Michigan, Chad. And I hope I'm not being too solipsistic and like trying to pin everything into, you know, my personal perspective. I do want to go further and elaborate on, on some of the other connections you've made as well. But yeah, it's just, I think there's a theme here. And I think that what we're seeing is in the same way the Romans took over the pagan sites and, you know, those got taken over by the Roman church and those got taken over by the next church following them. I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing this sort of landscape metaphysical war playing out where the sacred sites of the Native Americans are taken by these universities. All of the relics and things of significance are are kept greedily for their own knowledge and not ours so they can rewrite the history right i mean what do you think i think you nailed it mark i think that's the most interesting part of this kind of research is how we're finding the same symbolism in these separate cities totally same and sometimes they're big cities sometimes they're smaller cities but you know just for instance i just briefly want to touch on it this morning you sent me Take a look at New Haven Green. And now that we've talked about Detroit a little bit and the pentagram symbolism and the Orion and the pyramid symbolism, the first thing I seen looking at New Haven Green was the exact, exact same symbolism. You had the exact same pentagrams laid out on the ground. And right next to them, right next is the Bank of America building, has three giant copper pyramids on the top. It's the same. Orion pyramid symbolism laid out next to these pentagrams on top of an ancient burial ground. You know, I mean, that's the identical symbolism we just talked about. So obviously, 
somebody is using these pieces of landscape as catalyst, maybe a catalyst, catalyst for what we don't exactly know, but they recognize that these ancient, many times burial grounds and sacred landscapes can be utilized and they're placing the symbolism, stamping the symbolism right on top of it. Sometimes, most times intentionally, but sometimes subconsciously. Now what you don't know, bad moment to turn on. I'm, I live by a busy road. The f- listeners of this show are probably going to get used to this soon, but I just moved and I'm still not getting used to it. So anyways, if you hear the cars, I'll have to edit this out. Mark, edit this out. <laughs> so right next to the green, as you pointed out, when you're looking at the map, you see these three pyramids and it never occurred to me to look at them from above just because, you know, I know New Haven, I walk around here all the time, right? So that sort of thing. And, but from the ground, that's a very tall building. It's one of the tallest buildings in that area. One of the tallest buildings in New Haven. And I've talked about this before on the show, a mentor of mine, a person who moved to New Haven from Arizona specifically because of Geronimo and the, you know, the skull and bones sort of theft of his skull, right? He came here to reconcile with Geronimo's spirit and through doing that, he ran into me synchronistically and taught me so much. And one of the things that he told me he's learned and take this for what it is, it's not any evidence I can prove, but it's pretty good secondhand, I would say. He told me that at the top of that building, underneath those pyramids on May 22nd in the morning at sunrise every year, the class that had just graduated or is about to graduate, that I don't remember, Bonesmen, the 15, go up to that point and they dissect a human heart that they get from the hospital, of course, probably fresh, probably from someone who just died, and they slice it up, dice it up into 15 pieces, and they all take a bite as the sun rises. In that spot, in those pyramids, next to that ancient burying ground where there's three churches. I mean, <laughs> Chad, did I scare you? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get get too uh, morose there, but... <laughs> no, you didn't scare me, but it makes all the sense in the world, man. You know... Maybe. It's high Egyptian magic, man. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm, right now I'm reading fun facts about the green from, from the actual New Haven Green website. And these are there's three so-called fun facts. Fun fact number one, between 4,000 and 5,000 people are buried on the green. Let's see, fun fact number two is it's believed that the Puritans designed the green to be large enough to hold the number of people they believed would be spared in the second coming. 144,000. <laughs> I mean, we can just add the layers to this place. And, you know, so it's like we almost have to think that back then in the 1600s, they already recognized the significance or the sacredness of this particular piece of landscape. And nowadays, we've got somebody's, someone's out there putting symbolism on top of it, also trying to utilize it. Undoubtedly, yeah. And the other really interesting thing is they laid it out, the original city plan, and you can still see the original city plan. It's 
created by the streets Chapel Elm from east to west and then church and college from north to south. And you get this sort of nine square grid. And in the ninth square, you notice that at least on the map that I'm looking at, the ninth square is not where you would imagine it would be if you were to draw it out one through nine. Even if you tried to orient it from east to west, north to south, any variation, it doesn't make sense until you put the numbers into the nine square the way you would a magic nine square. Are you familiar with the magic nine square, how you can put the numbers in and they all equal the same sum on each side? Yep, absolutely. So when you do that, you put the nine at the bottom of the nine squares. So it would be on, if you're looking at a map, it would be like between Church Street and State Street going north to south and then east to west, Elm and Chapel. And that, you know, it just, to me, is all you need to know because the the magic nine square equals 15. 15, you know, is a Saturnian number. Nine is another sort of number that points to that. This is all a symbolic of, of Saturn, I think, which I don't know what Egyptian deity lines up with Saturn, but there is a lot more to this whole Egyptian symbolism when you actually get on the on the ground here, you know, just from the buildings and the, the other cemetery that... Oh, first. But what are your thoughts, Chad? I'm just kind of rambling here. Now we're getting into my own personal <laughs> interest. I don't really have many questions prepared. No, I love it. I'm I'm staring at it right now, the map of it right now. And what I'm th I'm seeing these three churches. And I, I found out the center church has a crypt in the basement. So they actually have some of the actual headstones and stuff in the basement. And you can visit this crypt. But when I hear the city name, New Haven, you can also, of course, with the you know new a new heaven, mm -hmm. and with all those ch churches right there, what they those churches who are all three of them stare at this piece of landscape, maybe thinking, say just briefly, I'm looking at Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth through the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Jerusalem prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And a little farther down, see, the angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod, found it to 12, be 1,200 stadia, and measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick so when we, those i feel like those three churches are looking at this piece of landscape as a new jerusalem possibly a new heaven and earth at the same time you have other entities probably looking at it in other ways that's a really strange piece of landscape i mean a new he new heaven literally describes you know, kind of describes it down to the T. Yeah. You know, like a square, 40, 144 cubits. Like, you know, the angel measured its gates, its walls. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's speculation, but it, it fits pretty darn good. I, I bet those churches see it in that light. 
Absolutely. And there is, there's an image that I took that's right next to that building that you pointed out earlier with the pyramidal shapes on top, the rooftops that look exactly like three pyramids next to each other. Yeah. There's a picture. I'm going to put it on the Zoom chat as soon as I can, and we'll see what you think. And I'll put this chat, or I'll put this in the description of the episode as well as the other pictures I said I would. So... I'm reminding myself to do that as well right now in post, put a little flag on it, boom. But there are so many, there are so many different ways we can interpret this. And I do want to have you back on in the future, maybe after you have some more time to, to look into New Haven. If your schedule allows, I would be very, very grateful if you could. Cause like I said earlier, we're kind of working on a little project about this, but Either way, on to the larger picture. When we're talking about this symbolism, it's great to go in and examine it and find it. And you know, I'm sure people all over the country are going to be like, whoa, I found this cool thing in my city after listening to this. And that's great. I want people to do that. But there seems to be, you know, a technique that we've seen here in architecture. But what's the... What's the actual process after this has been set up? You know, what is taking place? What is the intention of these? Is it a Stargate? And I'm not talking about New Haven. I'm talking about, I'm talking about Detroit. Yeah, well, we can just talk in general about, we'll just say most of these places in general, because I think it's kind of the same to me, to me, and other people might decode them differently, but to me, I think they're what I refer to as consciousness portals. And what I mean by that is I don't mean a, a portal or a stargate where people can literally go through these things, but I think these pieces of real estate and landscapes are places where you can have consciousness travel. They may be catalyst of consciousness travel to information coming and going to being able to tap into the past and present and even the future. And I, I think that's why these landscapes have always been considered sacred from the time the Native Americans decided to put their earthen mounds or the, their villages in a particular place. They felt there was something right, something special about it, to when the governments came and stamped out the Native Americans because they too realized there was something special about it. And all these different people over the years start to realize that by incorporating these symbols on top of these special pieces of land, that they may actually increase the possibility or increase the fact that they are catalysts for this consciousness communication. So I, I think that's what's happened. And when I say that these artists and architects have came down here sometimes subconsciously tapped in and came up with these designs, I think that's what happened to them too. You know, they were down there, they tapped into this consciousness portal and this symbolism flowed through them. And I think that's what happens to us when we're down there trying to decode it. I think sometimes we're in the right frame of mind, we're tapping into the symbolism and this information and that's how we're able to come up with this stuff and start to decode it. And I, you know, to me, that's the key of all of this is the stories ongoing, you know, 
like I said before, I kind of aged myself, but I've been at this for over a decade now. And the story is still unfolding. And I'm talking about just in my neck of woods, Detroit. Like I'm still coming up with new stuff after all these years that makes everything else start to make sense. So I think, you know, that's the key. And what's so fun is that we can all pick our own local neighborhood and start to do this. And it can be a, you know, a a long-term project. And it it stays just as satisfying year 10 as it was year one, let me tell you. Right on. Well, that's good to hear. I've been I've been researching things for a while, but I've never had the discipline and direction that you clearly do. And I definitely want to point out that folks can get your book, Detroit Stargate, and it seems to be sold out. I tried to buy it, but there's this really cool, there's this really cool, like, what is it? How, how can I describe this? Microflip USB. That I've had that before. I've gotten people's music that way before. That's really cool, Chad. I've never seen an author use this type of device to to put your book out there. That's so cool because, you know, people can download a PDF, sure, download the the book for their Kindle, but you want to have something in your hand. So I'm going to order this after we're done as I definitely want to support you and I hope the listeners go out and get your book as well. I'm not wrapping up. I just want to give you a chance to tell people where they can find you before we maybe get into a little uh, more things directed at UFOs, these consciousness portals, taking people to other places. But before we get into that, Chad, can you tell them where they can go to find more from you? Because this is a lot of really interesting stuff. I want to have you back on really soon. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. I have a website, chanstemkey.com. Stemkey is spelled S-T-U-E-M-K-E. And I have, a, you know, quite a few articles over there. And like Mark said, I have a little micro flip drive for my books. And, you know, I'm not trying to make a buck. I just want everybody to go over there and check out the articles, you know, and hopefully it triggers something in you. You know, what happens a lot of times is you see some of these things and it triggers something that sparks a memory of something you've already seen. Kind of like how me and Mark are going back and forth off each other. When you see some of these articles, you know, my hopes are that it does the same for you. It triggers something that you may have seen in your neck of the woods. Mm. So just go over there and browse browse through some of the stuff. And, you know, if you like it, share it with your friends. I hope you enjoy it. Right on, right on. And I did say UFOs, but I misspoke because you just reminded me. And there are so many people in this same vein synchromystically reevaluating their landscape, their environment. There are definitely people out there who are, in my opinion, maybe this is like a new trend. I don't know. As somebody who's been researching for 10 years, maybe you've known about this a lot longer, but star forts, right? This whole Tartaria wave of, of intrigue. We talked about it on the show plenty of times. A lot of different folks have come on and told us what they think about Tartaria, but you have found some really cool star forts here in your area. And I think what's really interesting about your perspective on this is that it seems like you're saying the Native Americans built this. Maybe I'm wrong, but I tend to lean that way too. At least with what I found in New England, it seems like the forts that are all around New England 
could have been built by the Native Americans. But a lot of people will see this article you sent me with this sort of the star forts and then the Detroit International Exposition, and they're like thinking Tartaria, Tartaria. So what do you what do you think, Chad? Is it Tartarian? Is it somewhere in between? Are we just so lost with our you know history that we don't even know you know how, how like the the words are all mixed up what do you think i think a little bit of all that mark i don't here in detroit in particular i don't think these are all tartaria could there be some little history to them that we're not aware of absolutely you can always have the wall pull over your eyes but here in detroit in particular the star forts were literally used to cover up the Native American history. And what I mean by that, well, first off, I had no clue that over time there were four different star forts in Detroit. I knew there was one, you know, initially, but up until the last couple of months, I just discovered there was four of them. And the very first star fort was in 1701. We had a French explorer pulled a short Cadillac. He built the star fort. The Native Americans, Pontiac, like we were talking about, they weren't into having the Star Fort there in the middle of their sacred landscape, and they burnt it down. This was a cedar star fort at the time. Uh, a few years later, the British showed up on the Detroit shores, and they built a cedar star fort too. Took on the shape of the star, but at that point, they just built them kind of temporarily out of cedar posts. Once again, the Native Americans weren't having it. They burnt that star fort down. Now, you got to remember these first two star forts were built right on top of the Native American sacred landscape. So that's why, of course, they weren't having it and burning the star forts down. Well, the British decided, you know, maybe it'd be safer if we moved to the opposite side of the river, over where Canada is now. And they built another star fort. This was called Fort Maldine. And this was a great big earthen star fort, and it's still there today. And Fort Maldine, they built that in the mid-1800s. They only kept it for... I want to say 20, 30 years as far as military, and they actually turned that one into an insane asylum. So that's kind of a familiar story. Now back across the other side of the Detroit River, the American government came to town, and we're in the mid-1800s. They decided they'd build another star fort, a big earthen one, like the British built across the river. So they built what was called Fort Wayne, a giant earthen star fort right at the confluences of the Detroit River and the River Rouge. And this was the pinnacle of the ancient American sacred landscape. Right here is where they had what was called the Great Mound. This mound was at one point 200 feet wide by possibly 400 feet long, like the size of the Great Pyramid. I mean, enormous. And this is where different tribes would come and bury their dead. And long story short, this is where they decided to build Fort Wayne Star Fort. And actually, when they renovated Fort Wayne back 20 years ago or so, they found ancient American native bones within the earthen walls. So not only did they tear down their mounds, but they used those mounds with the bones in them to build the earthen walls of the Star Fort. So... There was a little bit left of the Great Mound remaining right next door to Fort Wayne. Now we're in the 1890s. Well, that last remnant of the Great Mound was to be taken out by the Detroit World International Expo. The expo came to town and felt the perfect spot to build. The exposition was on top 
of where the great mound was. So as they were building, they were actually selling off barrels of sand from the great mound for two and a half cents per barrel as building materials. They were also letting the ferrygoers dig through the mound for a quarter to look for ancient bone relics to take home with them. And they estimated as they were going through this mound, they dumped over 1,300 skeletons directly into the Detroit River. And what remained of the mound, the very last remnant of the mound, they used to tamp down the dust on the pathways to the exposition. So you just got to imagine all these people came in for this exposition and they're literally walking on the remnants of the ancient past. So that's kind of the last stamping out of the Native American sacred landscape here in Detroit with these, in this case, with the star forts. So that's how I get into it as I moved forward in the future, the re-emergence of all the same symbolism, although it was tamped out by these star forts in the ancient past, that same symbolism, all this gateway symbolism still seems to be trying to re-emerge. Wow. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to imagine that that kind of thing happened and definitely, you know, not outside of the realm of possibility, but just because of how brutal it was, you know, to go and, and desecrate a sacred site yeah. like that, throw the skeletons in the river itself. I mean, this is, yeah, it's, it's tremendously, you know, it makes you wonder, you know, given what we talked about before about the reputation of Detroit, you know, what, what kind of residual energy was left there actually Quint, you want to talk about synchronicity? I was listening to an old, old episode or, or recording rather of the Coast to Coast AM Art Bell, and he's just doing the open lines. And I found an archive, so I'm just digging through, picking random ones. And you know, this is only two days ago, Chad. So I knew I was going to be talking to you. And I guess the the day of this recording, there's this, you know, awful crime that happened in Detroit. A woman was uh, thrown off of a bridge and I'm like, you know, that kind of sucks. Like that hurts. And the way art was talking about Detroit in the nineties, I mean, it was really, it was really graphic, you know, it was really like a uh, apocalyptic almost. And then the way he described this story, which, I think got misreported. I don't know. Maybe this is internet rewriting history, but apparently a woman was beat up by a, a group of three men, which is kind of symbolic, right? And she was 33 years old and they crashed into her car on a bridge, got into an altercation and beat her up and caused her to jump off the bridge into the river. And, you know, they were charged with her death there was a crowd of onlookers that i guess was like cheering which is just so brutal to hear that but i i think that part was misreported who knows if they're rewriting the internet but you know there's got and i'm not asking you to examine the symbolic nature of that kind of really gruesome crime but that i think in a really you know occult sense there has to be some sort of rhyme or reason with that. I don't know. What do you think when you hear stuff like that? Are there other examples of crimes that seem like they fit into this symbolic narrative, like these places 
because the bridges go over the river. The the star forts were built directly on the river. I mean, oh man. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. See, it's like I said before, as much as good there is around around these things, there's just as much, if not more, bad. Mm. I mean, we're talking about portals, consciousness portals, but also possibly portals to the afterlife. And for whatever reason, when we have that scenario, there seems to be a lot of death surrounding these areas too. Like even Belle Isle, I talk about how sacred it was, what amazing place this is. But at the same time, it was a, it's a devastating place. It was the start of some of the race riots. People have been murdered on well, the island. There's and that was accidents. Yeah, that was the bridge from Detroit to Bell Island, where that event that I just described before, a woman named Delita yeah. Word was her name. And yeah, it was pretty pretty sad to go and read about that. But yeah, I mean, you know, I know you're not exactly like a true crime reporter or anything like that, so we don't need to get too far into the nitty gritty here, but I think connection to that, you know, people talk about no. with the ghost hunting, you know, like, and that's not my flavor of paranormal, but the ghost hunting, they always talk about, oh, this is an ancient Indian burial ground, you know, and that becomes almost cliche with movies like a pet cemetery, but it's, there's a reality to that, a very brutal reality to that. Absolutely. And I, I think that's just it. I mean, we can look at one good example of a sacred spot that, you know, death surrounds is Niagara Falls. You know, it's also it's an amazing spot, sacred spot, but it's also the suicide capital. Because for whatever reason, people have this feeling like that's where they should end it. And I think some of these places are like that. Not, you know, there's just something about them that the veil people may recognize maybe subconsciously that the veil is thinner in these locations and you know if it's their time to go somehow they end up in these locations and, you know it's obviously pure speculation but you know a lot of these places do revolve around life and death around burial grounds you know they, they revolve around it you know so not only are they consciousness portals, but I think they could be portals to the afterlife, the next realm, whatever you, however you want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, to our point earlier, the more people hear this kind of stuff, the more they get inspired to go out and look for it. But I think also... On a larger level, on maybe like a 9900th monkey effect, the more we start to carry this awareness with us, maybe these things will start to be reconciled. I mean, these crimes of the past, you know, they can't be, you know, redone. We can't go back and change time. But I'll give you one example. Peter Shampoo, the last time he was on the show, he was talking about how the Wounded Knee Massacre site was a very sacred site and there was a mound there that was opened up and the stuff was taken to some museum in Massachusetts and I think he was a part of a, a group that petitioned to get all of that stuff brought back. So, and I, I think they were successful. Crossing my fingers and hoping I'm not wrong there because I don't, I really don't want to be wrong. But yeah, that's, that's, the kind of thing that I think we can do. And, and Peter's another really great thing he left me with was 
We need to go out and connect with these sites in a positive way. And Chad, you said this earlier too, like the more we can, just as much as there's the negative side of this, we can swing it to the positive polarity with the right intention. And, you know, I, I think we often as conspiracy theorists, at least myself, we maybe get a little too paranoid and think everyone's out to get us. But I think that itself, that, concept that dynamic is what's getting us in some cases that paranoia is what's getting us who knows maybe these cities were built that way by people who knew how corrupt their peers were and and they thought well these idiots won't know that i'm doing some like magic planning here and creating a stargate so that people ahead of me will have the same inspiration i do and if I, you know, talk about it, I'll be killed and burned at the stake, but I can maybe do some architecture magic that'll stick around a lot longer than I'll be alive, and, and that could have a positive residual effect. I think we should think about it just as equally in that light as we do in the sort of Smithsonian is going to come and hide everything and destroy everything and lock us down, which, you know, that's just as true in some cases. No, you nailed it, Mark. That's the key, though. If I had to pass along one message to everybody, that would be the message that these places can be utilized for positive energy. And, you know, that that's where it comes up to us guys, me, you, Michael Wan, Ross Ben, Corey Daniels, all these guys. If we can bring these places to people in a positive light and we can put that positive energy on these places, you know, we can utilize these places as positive places. And that's what I've been saying all along is I've been going to Hart Plaza and all these places is in the background, there's people talking about, you know, these places are evil. And I'm trying to say they don't got to be, they can be the most important place you've ever been to. See, I know Hart Plaza has changed my life personally for the better. You know, these places can be life changing and they can be life changing for other people too. And I think the more positive energy, we attribute to them, the more positivity we're going to get out of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And these images of Hart Plaza are really cool. I've never been to Michigan. I've driven all the way out to Colorado. I've gone out to Indianapolis. So I've been sort of south of you, but no, unfortunately never made my way north into Michigan, but definitely now on my list after talking to you and seeing these pictures very interesting i really really you know i think that's the other part of this is yeah sure you know we all have our own special neck of the woods but we can all sort of come together in the sense that like hey everywhere is a little weird you know like detroit Mm. that's a special place Here's another special place. Here's another special place. We're all sort of elevating this awareness. And then maybe then the grid isn't locking us down. It's actually raising us up. It's the the monkey bars that we climb through to, to stand from the highest perspective on the playground. You know, the playground that is this 5D, <laughs> 5D earth, you know, but it definitely, you know, definitely makes you wonder, you know, what the Native Americans, what their prophecies, 
how they line up with all of these structures and things like the big archways and the these portals. Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's no question. It's one of the commonalities in a lot of these sites, you know, is the ancient Native American landscape. And that's one thing when people are looking into it, look into the history, look into the look into the legends and the lore of that particular piece of landscape and around it. And that's what's really fascinating is when those ancient legends and lore are coming out in symbolic ways that sometimes sometimes only you would recognize, other people wouldn't even notice it. And that that's it, man. That's what that's when you're on the trail, you know, and I think that commonality does have something, you know, to do with all of this. I'm not sure what yet, you know. That's one point I always make is I don't know 100% where this information's coming from. You know, could it be the deceased? Possibly. Could it be from the future? Possibly. Could it, you know, could it be from above, below? You know, I don't know, but this information is coming through some sort of consciousness portal from somewhere. And the more of us that can pick up on it, I think the more, the more we're going to try to figure out what's going on, so to speak here. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, looking at this, I see this sort of obelisk that reminds me of, what is this one here? The lighthouse, the Albert, the Livingstone Memorial Lighthouse. Where is this? Because this... Yeah. This is why I sent you that East Rock wiki, because the East Rock Tower reminds me of this. Man, Mark, this is one of my, this is like my favorite location in Detroit. This is my personal spot. There's a, if you notice, there's an octagon fence that surrounds it. So you, I could sneak in there with my dogs and let my dogs run free without bothering anybody. And yeah, this lighthouse is the only marble lighthouse in the world. Wow. And it's right on the northern northern tip of Belle Isle. And, and the architect Albert Kahn who made it, he made it to be symbolic of an obelisk, like he said so. It sits right on the northern tip of Belle Isle. It overlooks the realm of the gatekeeper. Yep, this and yeah, man, that was my spot. I'd sit on the tip steps right there and smoke with my dogs. You know, that that's my spot. Well, I don't know how I do it, but I definitely seem to have pointed out a lot of significant things here. Yeah, it, it definitely reminds me of the uh, the East Rock spot. There's a, a tower of similar height on top of this uh, trap rock mountain on the east side of New Haven. That, yep. Yeah. The but, Soldiers and Sailors Monument, correct? Right, right. And I was going to ask, thank you for saying that, because I was going to ask you, what is the significance with that? Because we see those solar, Soldiers and Sailors Monuments all over the place. Yeah, the the couple things I've noticed, because we have a, soldiers, a nice Soldiers and Sailors Monument right by Hart Plaza and what the heart of what's called Campus Mars right where I was talking about all the pentagram symbolism converging into one star under the ground. Mm -hmm. Well, the soldier sailors monument sits right next to that star. You know, the sculpture freedom actually above that monument looks down and stares at that star. And the one thing I noticed is for one, they all have time capsules. So for whatever reason, they have time capsules and usually they're either a pyramid or a pillar. One of the two. And, you know, what's the symbolic, you know, symbolism behind that? I'm not sure, but like, like the one I saw there, 
what is it, Easter egg? Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? It's a giant pillar. Giant pillar. One of Detroit's a pyramid. But every every monument I can think of, soldiers and sailors, is either a pillar or a pyramid. Both of them obviously be, being, you know, symbolic connection points between the earth and the heavenly realms, or so to speak. Pyramids obviously are supposed to connect us. Pillars are obviously antennas, transmitters, receivers. So those are, those are the couple of commonalities I've had, but for whatever reason, they seem to be some of the oldest monuments in town, and a lot of them are the most centrally located, like the one in Detroit, centrally located. Indianapolis is centrally located, right in the middle of a giant circle. Right. The the one there, the one there in East Rock, and you know that's pretty cool. That seems to be is that the highest point around. Yeah, within the within the city, yeah, it's the the highest point. There's another mountain called west rock sort of i I would think west rock's taller it's just further away it's bigger for sure east rock's a little smaller than the other formations but yeah there's a, a legend that these three mountains east rock west rock and then north of it it's known as sleeping giant for the reason that they're known as like these giants that were brothers and died and fell on the ground and became these two ridges that, you know, now people are like, oh, wow, that looks like a sleeping giant, you know, and and that's literally what the Native Americans said. They said there was a big giant named Hobomoko, and he had all kinds of problems, and he was a hero, but he also, like, was somebody that you needed to fear, and so it's a kind of a complicated myth. I don't know the ins and outs of it fully, but... Yeah, that's the story. And then they go and build a soldiers and sailors monument on his head. Yep, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I would say that, that to me symbolically, they put a transmitter and receiver on top of a giant's head. I mean, that's that's crazy. Like it's almost like a symbolic pineal gland, so to speak, on top of the giant's head. And, and that legend you're talking about, we have that exact legend here in northern Michigan. You asked me about, about the copper earlier. Uh, I'll royal the neighboring mountain. It's called the Sleeping Giant, and it's mm. the same legend you just described. Exactly. Right, it's right. The same legend as called and, Sleeping and, Giant, and then. Well, and I was going to say, and we talked earlier about that Hammonasset ley line that connects, I mean, virtually from the two places, and there's all these astronomically aligned stone structures along this ley line. So. Several of the monuments in the plaza itself were laid out to correlate with the constellation of Orion, as well as the Giza pyramids. And that was done by the artist Osama Noguchi, we talked about briefly before. And one of the big questions everybody has when they find out this plaza has been aligned to Orion and the pyramids is, was it intentional by Osama Noguchi? And it may have been intentional because he just got back from Egypt. He spent a year in Egypt before he came and created Heart Plaza, trying to get a feel for the Egyptians and what they felt about their temples. And he came back and he created Heart Plaza. But this was in 1974. So at this point, nobody had ever heard of what we know as the Orion Correlation Theory, put out by Robert Ruval in 1994, I believe it was, pointing out that the Giza pyramids may have been built to correlate to Orion. So this would have been the first instance of that, you know, that modern history that we're aware of. 
But like I said, he never actually came out in any of his interviews and said that he did this intentionally or that he did this at all for that matter. Mm. But when, you know, you look at the over overhead view or the bird's eye view of the plaza, you know, it, there's no mistake in it, especially considering he just got back from Egypt. And he's also did other projects previous to this that may have, you know, possibly lend credence to him subconsciously doing this which was one of them was the face to be seen for Mars back in 1947. And he was going to create this huge face a mile long by two miles wide, two miles long by a mile wide, have a pillar of a nose that was a mile tall. And his idea with this in 1947 was if we were to destroy ourselves in a nuclear holocaust, that the Martians or some race from the moon would be able to recognize that at one point there had been a race here on Earth. Well, of course, 30 years later, NASA sends back images of a a face possibly on Mars, and when you put the face on Mars from the 70s next to Noguchi's face to be seen from Mars from the 40s, they're absolutely identical. So I always point out, did Noguchi possibly tap into this information and come back with this symbolism? And did he do it again when it came to Detroit? Now, so, let me mind? get this. So, Osama Noguchi's doing all this stuff in the 40s? I, I I was off on my timeline. I was assuming he was, you know, in the 70s or the 60s. This is all way earlier than I imagined. So, Hart Plaza, when was that finished building? When When did they finish constructing that? Well, Hart Plaza was the 70s. Noguchi was imagining the face to be seen from Mars mm, in the 40s. Okay. But he built Hart Plaza in, in the 70s. Right on, right on. And I I wanted to, you know, ask you about the timing as well because I heard recently from another podcaster that the dog man is said to be seen every 10 years in the Great Lakes area. And it's always on a, a day that, or a year that ends in the numeral seven. So 2017, <laughs> 10 years later, 2027. We got quite, we got five years to go until he comes back. But, you know, considering there are many strange sightings and strange experiences that are had and encountered up in that area, do you think that Osama Noguchi and other builders? built in this area to sort of interact with whatever the other, you know, whatever the other side had to offer. It seems like, you know, there are other things coming in from this portal into our reality. I mean, not just dogmen. There's a folklore of water panthers. Yeah, there's all of that. There's all of that. And I, I'll get back to the dogman in a minute because I got a weird relationship with the dogman. But what the takeaway I've been getting from it is when these artists go down to these places, many times these places were already sacred landscapes and a lot of times they'll have a contest and the object of the artist is to go to this landscape, get a feel for what fits in and come back with the plan and submit it for the contest. And I think when these particular artists, like Osama Noguchi and some of the other ones we talk about, when they go there and they get in this space and they get the feel, sometimes they're subconsciously tapping into the history of these landscapes and it shows up in their artwork. You know, and I can't say that every time. Sometimes I, it is 
absolutely intentional, but there's other instances where I think these artists are just at the right place at the right moment. And this information, the symbolism is literally filtering through them into their blueprints for what's to become. If it's a park or art architecture, what have you. Mm. Right. Right. And I'm going to have his name spelled in the description of the episode, Isama Noguchi or Samu Noguchi. And he was born in 1904, died in 1988. So he was pretty old when he, or he was at least at the last sort of stages of his life, you'd think, when he was doing a lot of this work. Where did he, where did he learn these things? Is there any word of like, you know, was he a prodigy? Was he intuitive? Did he go to a special school for architects that also integrate mystery school teachings? You know, did you, did you look into his background at all? Absolutely. He was the understudy and the disciple Buckminster Fuller. Familiar with buckyballs. Oh, yeah. We've done an episode on Buckminster. Okay. Well, he he was Buckminster Fuller's disciple, so to speak. So he was very, you know, very familiar with a lot of the sacred symbolism. Absolutely. And up until the point where he did Heart Plaza, he didn't really do any gateway symbolism that I'm aware of, but he literally his next piece of art he did when he left Detroit his next installation was in Cleveland Ohio and he built a giant sculpture and it was called the portal so you know there's no mistake in his next sculpture at this point he had portals on his mind and then he went from uh, Cleveland he went to Hawaii was his next sculpture and he created what was called sky gate and he said that was a portal to the sky you can see the constellation of Orion on winter solstice right through the you know middle of the sky gate so before he came to heart plaza he was in egypt and when he left he went around building these portal sculptures quite quite literally now have you ever considered or or has anyone ever done this trying to connect the portals on a sort of bird's eye view map and seeing if, if anything, if a pattern emerges, has there been any word on, you know, why he selected the places he selected? Was it just from, it, you know, being there and saying, okay, this place could use a portal? Or, or do you think maybe he was looking at the map bird's eye view style and saying, okay, we need to create a portal line like this. And that means we'll have to have something in Cleveland, Detroit this place and so on and so that's uh very possible i haven't looked at it totally like that now that's possible because when he was in detroit you know these guys they'll do their research before they enter the contest and they start coming up with their plan so i'm sure he was aware that this was an ancient mound site this was a sacred piece of real estate but that being said the portal he built down in cleveland it's in front of the police station And I did as much digging as I could, and I can't, you know, come up with this as a special piece of real estate or anything of the sorts. So that would make sense if he was doing it because they were in a line of sorts. But, you know, certain places, they were pieces of sacred landscape. He put them, but others weren't, you know. So maybe he was trying to create some type of line. I haven't tried to put a line on a map yet. He did at one point, the closest, you know, esoteric thing I found him saying was, in an interview, he said some of the symbolism, you know, I'm going to put into these sculptures and artwork won't be recognized until the time is right. So, may, you know, like you said, maybe he was up to more than we're aware of and 
making lines or, you know, connecting portals. It's possible, man. It's possible. Well, and, you know, this has been so interesting because what you've been studying, particularly with this sacred landscape conversation, I think it, it goes to the heart of what's really going on when we look at what most people call, you know, political cult magic, right? You, you see these sort of videos online, they're talking about, oh, well, they're manipulating us through the media, they're manipulating us through the laws, they're manipulating us through the, you know, this and that. But I, I think on a foundational level, until we realize that the world that we're sitting in, or the, the, the cities and the, the towns that we're sitting in, have been constructed with forethought to channel the human mind, to bring the human mind to a certain state of being a place. You know, this is a, a type of, you know, setting the stage and then the stage becomes, you know, downtown Detroit, Hart Plaza. And what happens there can be mundane or it could be fantastic. I'm sure there's been, you know, interesting things given what you've been studying have you noticed strange events happening around these monuments now that you ha have had your eye on these monuments anything that seems unusual protests were pretty prevalent in the past few years but you know outside of that i'm sure they protested down there in Hart plaza is there anything strange that ha people have done oh geez yeah protests the, the fact you brought up protests is a big one. Say right where the Stargate is in Hart Plaza is where Dr. Martin Luther King actually gave his I Have a Dream speech for the very first time wow. in the exact location the Stargate is now. Before yeah, the Stargate was built. Location, wow. Exactly, before the Stargate was built. Wow. So underneath the Stargate, there's a giant, giant green boulder stone with a bronze relief of Dr. Martin Luther King right underneath the Stargate. And uh, yeah, I mean, all kinds of the same piece of real estate was the final stop on the Underground Railroad before uh, the slaves would cross the Detroit River to freedom. All kinds of crazy. One thing in personal experiences are there's an electronic music festival at Hart Plaza every year called Movement. Mm. And I've been there and interviewed lots of people. And I've heard a similar story where people think they have saw glimpses of their future. And granted, you know, people are a little off their minds in some cases, but regardless, I've heard the similar story. People swear they've caught a glimpse of their future. And, you know, I've kind of had similar experiences there. You know, so and, what's so strange, you just brought up a memory and my girlfriend, she's here. So I'm going to tell this story while she's here because it's her story. But when we were starting, when we were dating, like just met, she was at this like, music festival on the green in new haven and one of the big things that her and i have learned about and researched together are all these different stone structures and one day after we're hanging you know we're, we're hanging out and it was i guess the morning after she had gone to this music thing and she sees this rock on this hike that we're on and she's like oh my gosh that rock looks just like this weird rock i saw last night while i was dancing with the music like it's like the same shape and she's like when i when i saw it last night it was like a portal stone she thought of it like a portal stone and i'm like holy crap and i didn't it didn't really dawn on me then 
until kind of later when we were really learning about the magic of these stone structures, particularly up here in New England. But yeah, I think there's something to that. I don't think she was listening to electronic music that day. It was like a New Haven Arts Council jazz festival thing. But but yeah, it was. It, it's just you brought that back up. But I'm wondering, like, you know, we talked about the New Haven uh, Green situation earlier in our conversation, not today, but last time we were recording, and it certainly has a sort of energy. It's definitely there's no portal there that I've seen, but there's that octagonal structure, that octagonal fountain. There's the pentagrams, and here's a you know secondhand account of of somebody having a, a strange vision is this something that like is that what you mean when people are seeing into their future at this movement festival do you think the the music festival creates that atmosphere somehow in some aspect do i think the combination of the music in conjunction with the landscape i think if you're hearing a, a particular maybe a tone or a particular frequency and you're in a particular frequency possibly and you're located on a particular piece of landscape i think it you know i don't know how to put it if it's possibly opening the veil splitting the veil making the veil a little thinner so you can you know but i feel like it may do something because maybe experiences will happen when there's music you know in conjunction with a special piece of landscape and and you know another way to look at i look at it is the music festivals I'm looking at, a lot of the people are stoned. And me in particular, when I go there, same thing. I think when smoking in particular, that's what I do, it may put you in that particular frequency on occasion. If you're at that frequency at the right spot at the right time, you may have that experience. And I think that's what may be happening. I couldn't agree more. I think that's why I smoke every day. Not that I, I'm seeing visions or anything, but I definitely notice I definitely notice this heightened state of awareness. And we can't say every drug is going to do that to people. Cannabis is a is a plant medicine, unique in itself. But wow, I mean, I wonder if there's a sort of. And I'm, well, and I'm not saying that's the only way it can happen is with cannabis too. I'm just saying it's one it's one commonality i have you know i have noticed you know not only amongst myself you know 90 percent of the discoveries i've made by doing my research you know i've been on cannabis but a lot of the people who i've been interviewing who just happen to be at these events you know happen to be on cannabis so it could be just a total coincidence you know but you know there could be something to it too i noticed a lot of these guys a lot of a lot of us guys looking into these cities I kind of, you know, into it. So, you know, is it just a coincidence or is it putting us in a certain, certain state or certain frequency possibly? Well, and they say cannabis is a, a very feminine energy. The earth itself is our mother, our feminine, you know, energy. And these stone structures in a way are kind of like this masculine imposition over the mother earth's energy right we take her sacred stones and mash them up and turn them into powder and then re-pour them into concrete or cut the stones into shapes and arrange them into these structures that more often than not not the portals but with obelisks and whatnot they look very masculine 
Do you think that there's a language of the sexes or gendered nature to these structures at all? Yep, you nailed it, man. Every park I've looked at has the male and the feminine unity. You'll find either an obelisk-like structure and a ring-like structure or arch feature. You know, the ring or the arch is obviously the feminine symbol, where the obelisk is the male. But pretty much every park will have both of those. Hart Plaza has a giant obelisk right at the entrance to the park. It's called the pylon. And then it has the giant stargate. You know, that's your circular womb. And that creates a gateway park. And every single park I've looked at, man, will have both of those symbols incorporated somewhere. And sometimes it's the same symbol. You know, for instance, the gateway arch in St. Louis, the artist Errol Saarinen, he designed it and he said this, he did this intentionally so it would be both an arch and an obelisk. So when you look at it from the front, you see the arch that we're familiar with. But when you look at it from the side, it looks like an obelisk. So you have the arch and the obelisk create the gateway. And that's, you know, that seems to be what's taking place in many cases. The unity, the male, the female are, you know, given the opportunity for this gateway symbolism for whatever reason. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm really, really, every time we get into these topics, I'm always so surprised by how simple it can be when you understand the key, right? It's like a map. If you don't have the legend or the key, that map is really essentially worthless. Unless you've been to that place before or kind of have a frame of reference, the map is, is kind of worthless without a key or a legend. And the work that you're doing, Chad, is just so important. It's giving people the key and the legend that they need to go and examine the map that is their reality. Cause we all are living in these different places on the earth and Chad, you can only go so far. So I might've asked you this already. Like I, I said, I, we needed to, we needed to rejoin because the, the, the first conversation, I just, I couldn't end it where we left off. I wanted to keep going, but what do you think when it comes to examining our own backyard, do you have any advice for people how they can start to go and, and look for something new outside of what you've already defined here? And do you think that it's a, a, a commonality? Yeah. Like, can people go and take what you've examined in, in Michigan and Detroit and, and would it hold up in other places? It will absolutely hold up in other places. I've taken kind of the same format I started with in Detroit. And I, you know, won't get into detail, but I've been did Chicago, Ohio, St. Louis, you know, several other cities, and it holds up pretty much in every city. I think pretty much people can. Well, the way I went about it, you know, I'll just give you a little rundown how I initially did it, and I started looking for sacred landscapes because I was interested in ancient mound sites initially. And in my neck of the woods in the Midwest, most of the landscapes were built over with cities so i would look what was there many times there would be a park and if you go to one of these parks you'll recognize right away if there's a bunch of sculptures and symbolism or not and you know in almost every city there's going to be an incredible park there with some amazing sculptures and the first thing i did was you know i you read the signs and many times the signs will tell you way more than you expect like in heart plaza you know, one sign to the fountain says this is at the gateway to a great city, referring to it a gateway. 
there's the gateway to freedom. There's the transcending gateway. So, you know, you just read the signs and sometimes it'll say exactly what they are. And, it, you know, you think there's some significance to it. I go straight to the artist or architect and find out, you know, what, what they had to say about it, you know, what their thoughts were about it. And sometimes you can you know, go beyond that, like you said, and find out the artists and architects, you know, inspirations and just kind of work your way backwards. And, you know, that's kind of how I do it. And one super useful tool I found is Google Earth or any satellite imagery. And when you, you zoom in on these towns from above, many times right away, you'll build a spot, you know, the special parks. The parks will be laid out with sacred geometry and whatnot. And then once you, once you know the name of the park, then you can, you know, use your search engine and get a, into a little more detail. But like you said, the key is to have your boots on the ground. You can find a couple things. You can find enough to get you to the location. But, you know, to really make the discoveries, you got to go there and get your boots on the ground and get your mind in the right, you know, the right space. You're going out exploring. And that's when you're going to make all your discoveries, 100%. It's hard to do a lot of different cities, I think. And that's why if every, I think if everybody could pick their own city, you know, so to speak, and kind of really dig down for five years or, you know, take, take your time and really dig into the history and everything. That's when I think we're going to start getting somewhere when we can all really come up with some detailed information about our cities. Then we're going to come up with some detailed correlations, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I went over to Buckminster Fuller's uh, Wikipedia when you mentioned that, because we talked about Bucky before I had a gentleman on the show named Birch driver who himself is an engineer. So takes a lot of, a lot of inspiration from Buckminster's work. Naturally, I think Buckminster's work overlaps in so many ways that anyone should be inspired by his work. And often in this realm of conspiratainment, conspiracy discussion and whatnot, even though I try to be more conspiracational, if that's a word. And it is now. It is now. We, we often hear people, unfortunately, try to maybe simplify things by saying like, okay, they must all be Freemasons or they must all be Jesuits or they must be part of some group that's trying to control us. You know, why else would they be doing this kind of stuff? Do you think, you know, to the best of your, your research, is there sort of thread with these guys some group that they're a part of or or is it purely just you know they're connecting with the same you know spirit through the same artistic medium or, or in a different way well some on the gucci in particular i haven't found any like freemasonic threads whatsoever that's not to say they're not there but i haven't found them that being said detroit though has huge masonic threads that we have the largest masonic temple in the world and in particular Alistair Crowley had a had a appearance in Detroit that may or may not had something to do with what Osama Noguchi was picking up on. And what I mean by that is in 1920, Alistair Crowley came to Detroit, and the way he put it, he felt Detroit was the perfect location to issue in the new Aeon of Horus. So he came to Detroit, and he performed all kinds of sex rituals, I uh, hung out with the Freemasons and he actually tried to create the world headquarters that was going to incorporate all the different Masonic branches into one building. 
But his idea was his OTO would be the top of the ladder, so to speak, and he would be the leader of all the Masons in general. <laughs> well, you know, the other the other sects weren't going for that, you know. So after a while, he ended up leaving town, according to the newspapers, unsuccessful. But I know for a fact they had all kinds of sect rituals, utilizing mescaline that they had got from Park Davis. And, you know, years down the road, we had all this Horus symbolism showing up at Heart Plaza. So did when Noguchi created the Horus and Sun Fountain, was he somehow tapping into Aleister Crowley's new Anne of Horus rituals? You know, it's it's possible. You know, was it was that ritual still in the air, so to speak? You know, it's possible, or it could just be a coincidence once again. You know, I don't know for sure, but it's possible. Well, I certainly love that we're bringing Aleister Crowley into this. I don't know if we mentioned him in the first part of our conversation, but he's come up a lot for me. Researching the occult, I was drawn to Aleister Crowley very early in my life and quickly realized I was playing with fire, you know, this thing that could potentially damage my life if I played with it uh, recklessly. I even had an experience where just bringing his book, Lieber for the, you know, sort of culmination of his technical work, right? Most of his books are kind of poetic and flowery, but Lieber four is, is like his most practical book in my opinion. So I bought this book and it was quite a, a fee hundred dollars is, is a lot for me and a book i usually don't spend that much money on books so i was excited to get it and i brought it with me to work and i brought it with me to work at this cafe and the cafe happened to be in new haven on the nine square grid that we discussed earlier in the ninth square of the nine square grid and i have this book there and I'm reading it in between, you know, work and sort of like, you know, what the day would fluctuate and certain times were busier than others. So I would have time to read. And at one point in the day, this possessed person comes through the door, possessed. And I didn't realize they were possessed. <laughs> I haven't even really ever used that word to describe it when telling this story, but it does feel like now in hindsight that this person was possessed. And I say that because they didn't order anything. They sat down at the cafe table that was directly in the line of sight from the counter. He could have sat anywhere else in the cafe and I would not have seen him, but he sat in my line of sight and he pulls out a small pocket sized Bible and two electric candles electric candles, little plastic <laughs> candles that you have to turn a little switch on. Right. So he's, you know, and he's doing some kind of like scribbling in between the Bible and I'm getting frustrated. Cause I'm like, well, clearly he's not ordering anything. He's spent 15 minutes conducting a seance. So I go over there and I tell him like, Hey man, you got to order uh, a coffee. If you want to hang out here, you got to order something. And he gets all, bitter and, and snappy and he's like oh listen i was gonna order something don't rush me you know so i'm like okay chill out man i go back to the counter a couple minutes later he comes up to get a coffee and he says in a very like 
disturbed and like I had really frazzled him. You know, I, <laughs> I interrupted something. He comes over and he's like, he's like, yeah, I want a coffee. He starts mumbling something. He's like, you know, I'm this. I'm the fourth incarnation of Charles Manson and the, the seventh grandson of Aleister Crowley. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and the book, the book is underneath the counter out of sight, you know, and I did not read it while he was in the cafe. My attention was fixed on him, you know? So I'm like, holy crap. Like, this is not the type of book I want to take out in public. And, you know, I asked him to leave the cafe. It kind of, was you know downhill from there he got upset and went and sat outside and probably continued his seance but that really that experience really stuck with me because before then you know I had believed in the occult I didn't I didn't doubt the occult but I, I I hadn't like interacted with it you know I was just an armchair occultist I was just reading about it I hadn't really you know expose myself to anything that was that kind of jarring you know just the idea that a book has the potential to alter the energy field you know almost the same way like they they set these towns up to have a certain energy field and maybe that's what attracted me and the book in the first place and then that added like some momentum to that energy which inspired this guy to then choose that particular spot but yeah big big digression there chad i love telling that story but i i think alistair crowley i'll let you i'll let you respond sorry (laughs) no that's a great i actually have a great connection that you know you saying this alistair crowley book may have manifested this this guy with his electric candles i love the electric candles but Aleister Crowley in Detroit, he, this is where he had his publishing company. So a lot of his books that he came out with, the Equinox and some of the other ones, all came out of Detroit. And he had this giant publishing warehouse building here where all his books were stored. And so, you know, it makes me wonder, you saying, Matt, if that one little book under your counter could bring in that guy. I'm wow. curious to what a building full of his books sitting here. Yeah. At the same time he's doing rituals, you know, could could that have an extra effect that I didn't contemplate up until this point, but you know, he had just thousands and thousands of his books stacked in that special building probably, you know. No doubt, yeah. yeah. That's that's interesting. Super interesting. Yeah, I would say you manifested that guy in some weird way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and there were many other disgruntled homeless customers that I had to deal with, but none quite as possessed as him, you know, very, very strange part of town that I was in. But Alistair Crowley is certainly somebody who has made an impact on many different places around the world. And I think people would be surprised to hear that he had uh, an impression on Detroit like that. I didn't know that. My understanding outside of what you shared so far, Chad, was that Alistair went to Detroit and to what your to your point earlier, he was trying to work out some kind of deal, build some kind of Freemasonic something, and the Freemasons did not like his ideas, so they sort of ran him out of town. And it's said, I think Tobias Churton writes about this in his biographies because he wrote a a book about he's written several books about Crowley, but he wrote specifically 
uh, a whole entire book on just Crowley in America, which if you don't have that, I definitely recommend picking that up. It might shed some light. He is sort of a Crowley apologist, Tobias Churton. He's not very, he's not, he's not always taking like the side that we might take, the more, you know, skeptical take, I guess. He sort of seems like he, he has a, a soft spot for Crowley. But either way, that that aside, Tobias is a, is a great writer, a great scholar, and he talks about how Crowley goes to Long Island to do some sort of ritual that he hopes will affect the Freemasons who he doesn't like in Detroit, which I think we mentioned this as well last mm-hmm. time. The Hammonasset Ley Line goes from Long Island through the East Coast through New York State up to the Great Lakes region. So it does feel (laughs) like he had to be aware of this sort of layout to some degree if he was to, you know, kind of expect his magic to work from that far away. You know, it's like, why wouldn't he just like move one town over and try to do some occult rituals against the Freemasons before leaving? Why would he go all the way to Long Island Point? Mm, yeah, I was not aware of that. That's super interesting. Super interesting. So you're saying there's a possibility that he could have been aware of the Hammonescent line? Is what you're thinking, maybe? Well, that's definitely possible. And, you know, we have Nikola Tesla building his Wardenclyffe Tower on the north shore of Long Island. And the Wardenclyffe Tower was so much more of a subterranean device than it was a above-ground device. Mm. It had this whole component to it that relied on these underground channels that Nikola Tesla had the, I think, the army or whoever he was working with. They, you know, pulled all this earth out of the ground and created these channels. And, you know, it seems to me like he was trying to, you know, push the energy in the earth around in the earth. Like he was seeing like, okay... Well, I know these ley lines are are here. The energy is passing around. How can we like tap into them and bring them up through this tower? And Nikola Tesla and Crowley were certainly alive at the same time periods, but I think Nikola is older, right? So he would have he would have done this kind of stuff maybe before Crowley got around to doing it, or maybe it was happening around the same time. So, yeah, I don't know how much he knows about ley lines, but it definitely feels like. You know, through his travels, he's coincidentally gone to many interesting places. Another interesting place yeah. Crowley has found is in yeah. Santa Barbara, California, which is a fault line. You know, he's he has this whole story of yeah. activity in, in California there. Well, that's super interesting. If, now, if either Crowley or Tesla were aware of the Hamnescent Ley Line, Wow, man, there'd be huge significance. Now, if you follow it northwest all the way up to the through Michigan, through Michigan's Upper Peninsula, through the tip of Copper Harbor, it would dead end in a gigantic underwater anomaly. And realistically, there should be no way that Crowley or Tesla should be able to know about an underwater anomaly 500 feet under Lake Superior. But, you know, the fact would still be if that's where this line points to, and it's, I think, the most significant feature on this entire line. Mm. You know, if either one of them knew about it, I'd be super interested to know how. 
you know, and it wouldn't be the first time it seems like somebody may have known about this feature. This feature is right off coast of Isle Royal, and it's right inside the United States-Canadian border. Mm. But the border used to be just a little bit south of Isle Royal and this feature. And Benjamin Franklin did a gigantic land treaty to have the United States border elevated just a little more so it would encapsulate this island as well as this underwater feature. So, and he also should not know about this underwater feature. They did it because supposedly the copper on the island, which possibly, but yeah, man, there's, it'd be super interesting because I don't know what this underwater feature is, but if this line points to it and Tesla or Crowley or both knew about it, I'd be curious, you know, I'd be curious what they know Hmm. because I've been trying to figure it out myself, but. Well, and it's no doubt, it's no doubt that the the Native Americans knew about this line because they built all of these structures, these cairns and different stone rows and stone structures, piles uh, along this Hammonasset ley line. That's the only reason why Graham Hancock's associate Glenn Kreisberg went and and found this stuff. I, I don't know if he... I think he actually, he found a report that was made by this guy who owned property in Connecticut and the Hammonasset ley line went through his property. So it was a amateur archaeologist who discovered it. And then I guess Glenn picked it up and, and expanded it through New York yeah. State and up to Kenisiwa Peninsula. But I never looked at the peninsula, past the peninsula, up to Isle Royal. And you're telling me there's an underwater anomaly there? I mean, that to me seems like, A, something that the Native Americans would have just somehow intuited, probably, or known about, maybe through myth. And I wonder if there's folklore up in that region to connect to that. But, yeah, man, so many people think of, you know, the Bermuda Triangle when they think of this kind of stuff. But in reality, the lakes, the Great Lakes from what I've heard you talk about, have far more strange things that go on. Yeah, the, the Great Lakes are in all, you know, supposedly there's more missing ships and boats and people by per square mile than the Bermuda Triangle and what they call the Great Lakes Triangle. And the Great Lakes Triangle encapsulates all the Great Lakes, big triangle. But if you scale that down, there's another triangle in the southern parts of Lake Michigan and stuff gets even stranger there in the small triangle. There's hundreds of shipwrecks, people missing, airplanes vanishing, engines quitting on the planes and boats. And, you know, it's the same scenario. Pretty much every one of the lakes has a little specific area that, you know, I don't know if they're vortexes or what they are, but, you know, things just seem different in these areas. Mm. And it's, you know, it's all over Michigan. I don't know if you attribute it to the water itself, you know, or I'm not exactly sure, but, yeah, I've been collecting these weird stories for years, and, you know, they're all over. There's estimated just thousands of shipwrecks that still haven't been discovered in the Great Lakes. And when they do discover them, many times they'll be sitting on the bottom of the lake in pristine condition, like, you know, no holes in the bow, you know, no broken mast. They'll be sitting there in perfect condition. And and the same excuse every time they'll say, you know, these boats must have got caught up in a storm and iced over and lost their buoyancy and sank in an instant. 
So, but what we end up finding is all these ships looking perfect on the bottom of the lake, you know? So if that's the case, I'm not sure, but you know, there are some super strange stories. I tell you that. Undoubtedly. Yeah. And it, it, it's even stranger that men, the island you mentioned, Isle Royal, it's the 33rd largest island in the United States. I don't know if that's a coincidence or <laughs> how we just keep having these things come up, but it seems like, you know, there's a rhyme, there's a pattern, and Chad, I got to hand it to you, man. You're doing great work deciphering this and, and coming up with really a, a logical approach to examining what seems to be left, you know, just waiting for people like us to uncover it. You know, it doesn't seem like next to these monuments, they leave some kind of code. It, the monument itself is a code and, and it's tapping into this larger, you know, enigma that is the planet itself. Absolutely. This is this is how a lot of this information gets out there, man, by bouncing this stuff off each other. And right. we probably figured out some stuff neither one of us would have ever known if we didn't have this conversation. So, right. You know, that's the key. I think all of us guys that are doing this research and girls, girls too, we need to get together, just consistently be bouncing this stuff off each other. And, you know, we, it seems like twice as much information comes out of it. No doubt. Yeah. And on, Undoubtedly, all the folks listening who will get in touch through various means, you can get in touch with me over Instagram or email. But Chad, if folks want to follow up with you, is there a way they can get in touch with you if they have maybe a message for you and say like some info they want to share with you? You know, be respectful, folks. Don't just litter Chad with, you know, junk questions. But uh, yeah, do you have any places you want the, the audience to follow up with you? Obviously, you have your website, Chad stemkey.com the link will be in the description there's a store there you can get his book on a wallet card size micro flip usb you can learn more about chad he's got articles essays but uh, yeah i think i just kind of did it all for you but is there anything else to say chad yeah that's pretty much it so you can you can find my actual email address if you want to personally email you can find that on my website i just started a telegram chad underscore x if you want to hit me up there i'm still trying to figure that out but i'll be there shortly oh right on and uh, yeah man so yeah that's pretty much it cool cool yeah and what is this television segment i see here on the website were you recently on tv yeah, there's a Michigan, local Michigan show, did a little segment on the Stargate Detroit. It was like just like a 12 or 13 minute little segment, but we went down to the plaza and did a little bit of filming and it turned out pretty good, pretty good. But yeah, it was the first time Stargate Detroit actually made the, you know, mainstream television show. It was on before a big football game. <laughs> so a bunch, bunch of football fans tuned in to see that. <laughs> that's yeah, it's, it's pretty cool that's a cool demographic to be exposed to some stuff i mean geez they get uh, exposed <laughs> to all kinds of cult weirdness through those nfl halftime shows and whatnot anyways so <laughs> yeah i don't know how that schedule worked out but yeah they, they, it was only like a half hour before a big game so i'm not sure if that's a demographic they were looking for but they got something they weren't expecting Right on. Well, folks listening, we will be back, I'm sure, with a part two to this episode. If not on uh, right away, who knows? Maybe it'll be edited together. 
If not, it will come out real soon. But thank you so much for listening. Chad, thank you so much for being here. And folks, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, what an episode. Wow, Chad Stemke, what a guy, came back to record for a second part. This probably the first time I've done that with a guest where I said, hey, let's have a two-parter. And I think I'll do that more often when it feels right. He's become an expert in the Great Lakes area, Michigan. He's studying cryptids, UFOs, strange alignments. And I should mention, Chad was about to say something about the Michigan Dogman. And we changed subjects like sometimes happens during these types of conversations this one happened to be particularly a little all over the place not chad's fault my fault but he mentioned michigan dogman and i did not remind him to bring it back up as far as i tell but because of that i had him on the free thinker society podcast with mike romanelli where we talked about some of the more paranormal things that chad researches like cryptids ufos and missing person cases so be sure to go over to the freethinker society podcast we're talking about stargate portals we're talking about missing people and if you haven't already listened to the freethinker society believe it or not chad was just on the freethinker society with myself and mike romanelli last week and we got into even more stuff that we couldn't get into today And I know that for certain because after Chad and I were finished recording, oh, I got to turn that off. After Chad and I were finished recording, I had him on the Freethinker Society podcast. And I was very careful to make sure we didn't repeat anything. So please, folks, go over, like, subscribe, share the Freethinker Society podcast. And of course, you're here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. So please give us five stars. Support us on Patreon. Support us on Rockfin. Support us on Telegram. Support us on YouTube. Support us on Instagram. Support us on Twitter. Support us on PayPal with a one-time donation. Go to Teespring and get some merch. You can support us in any of those places. You can also support us on Buy Me a Coffee. You can support us on Kofi. And now, in the episode description, you can support us via Cash App or Venmo. And please, folks, I can use all the help I can get. Making this podcast is not cheap, and I have a high standard of quality. As you might have noticed, the show has evolved uh, rapidly over the past six months, and I expect to continue at that pace. So help me do that. Join the Patreon. And if you do join the Patreon, you get some bonus shows. You get the Illuminati confirmed bonus podcast. That's right. We have over 20 Illuminati confirmed bonus episodes now. And you get the early releases of all of these episodes. You could have been listening to this interview with Chad Stemke two days ago. What are you doing? You might be listening to it right now on Patreon. Hello, family. Thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting me. And when you do become part of the Patreon, not only... Do you get access to all of these bonus episodes plus archives of bonus episodes that we've been adding to the Patreon since the show started? That's right. You could even hear me interview some of my friends if you're into that kind of thing. But you also get a spirit animal name divine to you. And we also 
will change your name in the Telegram chat. So you get a cool nickname out of it. And we also do monthly meetups, sometimes in person, sometimes over Zoom. So, so many reasons to support the show. It's a value for value podcast. And remember, folks, I am not wasting your time with ads. So please don't waste mine. That's right. I can't do this show without your help. So please contribute your time, talent, or treasure to this show. And of course, the guest, Chad Stemke. You can go to chadstemke.com. The link is in the description. And something that Chad has that I've never seen before, I think is really cool. It's like one of these business card-sized plastic uh, USB drives. And it has his book on it. Look at that. You can learn all about the Stargates in Detroit. Put it in your back pocket. Nobody even knows that you have all this information on your computer, on your phone, if you have the right adapter. What are you waiting for? Go support Chad or us. My family thinks some crazy podcast. Tara has a podcast that is coming soon. She's interviewed really, really awesome guests lately. And she's going to have a few more interviews scheduled soon. Speaking of interviews, I had an amazing interview with Crow Triple Seven. So be on the lookout for that episode this week. We also got into it with Freddie Silva and two other special secret guests. So thank you for being here. And of course, if you sign up for the Patreon, you can get all those bonus episodes right now. What? Bonus episodes. Not just the bonus episodes, the early releases, because I'm going to be editing all of these interviews tonight, tomorrow, the next day, and putting them to the Patreon. You might be hearing them in June sometime if you don't. So don't wait. Don't sleep on the Patreon. Support us. Help us get to a thousand supporters on Patreon. And that's it, folks. Thank you for being here and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Peace. Peace.